If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open up to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10, we'll continue our study there this evening. Every parent knows the situation that I'm about to describe. It doesn't matter if you're in the thick of things parenting now or if it's been many years since, since there were little ones in your home. But this is an experience that's especially acute for parents with, with toddlers. After nine months of pregnancy, this beautiful little baby comes into the world naked and screaming and hungry, right? Children that, and they are totally dependent on mom and dad for, for everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything, everything. Completely dependent upon us, upon us for every diaper change. Every drop of soothing, nighttime, ultra-hydrating lotion, every bit of ointment, every article of clothing, every calorie of nutrition and drop of hydration, it all depends on mom and dad. Because children are totally dependent, right, on their parents for the necessities of life. And it's interesting to me that with only a few exceptions, it seems that Throughout the history of the world, parents have, in general, been pretty good at meeting the needs of their kids. Even the not-so-great parents seem, seem to be able to do this. And even though kids learn very on, very early on to, to look to their parents to, to meet their needs, it seems like most of them have a really bad, really bad memory. Just the other day, I was getting uh, our youngest daughter, Addie, I was getting her her lunch ready, which always includes a glass of, of milk, right? Uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner always includes milk, and she loves her milk, or her mmm, as she calls it, right? She loves it, but apparently, I was too slow for my daughter's refined standards. And in a matter of about 10 seconds, my just ultra-happy daughter went from her default state of happy to a little bit restless to screaming and trying to put herself up for adoption. This, it, it was incredible. I mean, you've, you've probably had those moments, and if you've, if you've seen it, I mean, my daughter had these monster crocodile tears, and I was literally pouring the milk right in front of her. I mean, I was really, I was right in front of her, and she was shaking and convulsing. I mean, it was pitiful. So I did what fathers do. I begin to reason with her. My wife was laughing at this, right? Addie's about 19 months old, right? 20 months old. All right, so I begin to reason with her. I said, Addie, I seriously did this. I said, Addie, has there ever been one single time where daddy did not feed you? Ever. List it, mention it to me, right? Has there ever been a single time that I've failed to give you milk? Have you ever been thirsty for more than even a few minutes Addie, you can trust me. I will always, always feed you. You see, Addie was convinced, I guess, that I was not going to give her her milk, that I was going to fail her. Even though every day of her life, without exception, her mother and I have been faithful to give her all the nutrition and all the fluids that she needs. Now, fortunately for us, and fortunately for her, we do what wise parents do for young children. 
we strap her into a chair at lunchtime, right? So she cannot run away. She cannot make it into the road, right? We, we, we strap her in. Three straps and another strap. We strap, we strap our daughter in, right? Because otherwise, I'm convinced that my little girl would have packed a bag, run away from home, and gone tramping through the woods in search of a quicker source of milk. And there are cows nearby, but she would have struggled. You see... It's a good thing that she was strapped in. Addie had forgotten that, that I was her father and that I've always provided for her. But, but Addie's only one. And so we can at least begin to understand her, her, her oversight and her forgetfulness. But we're a little bit less understanding when it comes to the nation of Israel, aren't we? Right? It, it, they seem to experience these same insane lapses of memory. Just like my daughter, Israel has forgotten. In the text that's before us tonight, Israel has forgotten all the times that the Lord has come through for them. Israel is going to forget. They are forgetting all the times that the Lord provided for them. All the times that he defeated their enemies and in spectacular fashion. Now, with the text before us tonight, we're going to see that they are running away from God. They are rejecting God as their king, choosing instead a king like the nations. A king to rule over them. And unlike my daughter, Israel was not strapped in. And the Lord was going to and lets them run away. But what's great about our God and what's great about his powerful hand is that no matter how far and how fast Israel runs away, God was not going to let them out of his sight. And that's part of what we will see tonight. The book of Samuel has been so far a book of extreme ups and downs for the people of Israel. And even though we just saw a massive nationwide revival at Mizpah back in chapter 7, we just turn the page over to chapter 8 and Israel is ready to reject Yahweh as their king altogether. What a short memory. It was the same generation had already forgotten the Lord. And God's response to Israel is both merciful and terrifying. He's both. Merciful in that he warns them of their folly and reminds them of the Egyptian-like bondage that's going to come with the king. And terrifying in that he gives Israel over to their desires. God, in a sense, unfastens the buckle of their high chair and lets them chase after their own desires and fancies. And one of the things that we've talked about in, in recent weeks is how this is really an extreme form of God's judgment, not restraining Israel and giving them over to their sinful desires. Pastor and author Tim Keller recently said, we, we never imagined that getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that can ever happen to us. Last week in chapters 9 and 10, we saw that even though God is going to let Israel appoint a king, God wasn't done with his people. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't give up on you and your sin? I'm thankful for that. 
this new king would still be a man of God's choosing. And we saw God's hand in the detailed everyday fares of man as, as God sovereignly and meticulously orchestrated events back in chapters 9 and 10 to show that Saul would be Israel's king. We saw how God brought Saul to Samuel and Samuel secretly in chapters 9 and 10 anointed him to be Israel's first king. Well, tonight we come to inauguration day, the day where Saul will be publicly proclaimed and anointed as the new king in Israel. And the main text, I believe, the main point that is before us tonight, I believe, is this. When we forget that God has delivered us from bondage, we end up returning to slavery. But if God saved his people once, he can do it again. When we forget that God has delivered us from bondage, we end up returning back to slavery. But if God saved his people once, we can be confident that he will do it again. Look down at 1 Samuel chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 17 there through the, through the end of the chapter. Chapter 10, verse 17. <clears throat> now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray and ask for divine power in our service tonight. Father, we come before you again tonight, and like children, we come expecting to be fed. Father, we may not have the urgency of a toddler, but we should. You've told us to be like newborn babes craving the milk of your word. Father, for many of us, we may not feel that, 
So would you overcome our callousness and our hardness? And would you help us to see our need for you? Father, we want to hear from you tonight. So to that end, I pray, Father, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We don't need to hear from man. We need to hear from you. Plant your word deep in our hearts and cause it to bear great fruit that will last through all eternity, we pray. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention tonight to four lessons from this text. It's, it might feel a little bit obscure in some ways, but four lessons from this text. There are others, but tonight let's focus on four things that we can learn from Israel's inauguration day. The first thing I'd like to draw your attention to tonight is this. Remember, church, the Lord is your deliverer. Remember, the Lord is your deliverer. Or if I could put it another way, when you forget the past deliverance of the Lord, you're already on your way to wandering back into sin. When we forget the past deliverance of the Lord, we're already on our way to wandering back into sin. It's a special occasion, a special day in Israel. A king is going to be crowned. All the news trucks are there, right? People are dialed into their TVs ready to, to see the event. The people have spoken. Give us a king like the nations, they said. And the Lord has given in. So Samuel calls the people together at Mizpah, which was the very same location that just the same generation earlier where they had experienced the national revival back in chapter chapter 7. Perhaps Samuel is holding out some hope that the people will change their minds. So he begins the festivities with a really sobering, stern message, right? Like any good prophet. And in verse 18, we see Samuel begins the day by reminding them of the God they're rejecting. He's reminding them of the God they're rejecting. Look back down at verse 18. These are key verses for us. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. Do you see what, what Samuel's doing? He's saying, okay, you fools, have you already forgotten the deliverance of the Lord? Have you already forgotten the oppression of Pharaoh and how the Lord rained down plagues of death on the Egyptians? Have you already forgotten how Pharaoh pursued our fathers to the edge of the Red Sea? And have you forgotten how the Lord destroyed the army of Pharaoh without even a sword from Israel? Have you forgotten? Have you already forgotten how you almost died in the wilderness? Or do you not remember the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day? Have you forgotten, Israel, how your shoes did not wear out and your clothes did not wear out? Did you forget about the water that flowed from the rock and the bread that fell from the sky? Have you forgotten the past works of the Lord, your deliverer? Have you forgotten Jericho? Did you forget about Gideon? Did you forget about Samson? 
Have you forgotten how the Lord went on a victory march through the land of the Philistines and you weren't even there? It was just a piece of sacred furniture and God defeated your enemies. Have you already forgotten? Seriously, have you forgotten? Samuel's sermon had a very clear point. Israel, as we gather today to select a king instead of Yahweh, you better be clear on this. You have forgotten the Lord who has delivered you from your oppression. We can almost hear it in Samuel's voice, still pleading with them to repent. I imagine there's probably a pause after this and before he said, okay, now gather, let's do it. Pleading with them to change their mind. He's telling them that their sin is not just that they've rejected the Lord. That is what we have already seen, but their sin is that they have forgotten He's telling them, you are wandering into sin today because you've forgotten who the Lord is and what he has done. Church, do you see the lesson for us here? Is Israel just so stubborn and so unlike us that we would never fall into the same trap? Or are we prone to forget the past deeds of the Lord? You see, Whenever we wander into sin, I'm not just talking about big sins, I'm talking about any sin. Whenever we wander into sin, we do so because we have forgotten the Lord. We've forgotten what he is like. We've forgotten who he is. We've forgotten how he has acted in the past. And in order to call them to their senses and in order to prevent them from running into sin, Samuel's solution is a call to remember. To remember. The people are not just rejecting God as their ruler. They're certainly doing that. But the people are rejecting God, their deliverer. They've forgotten. When God's people spend too much time looking around at the systems of the world and when we spend too much time focusing on the so-called freedoms of a life apart from God, valuing the things that a world without him values, we get tricked into thinking that that bondage is really freedom and that our freedom is actually bondage. We forget. This is what Israel has done, right? And though we may not do it in the big way that Israel has done it, we do it in many small ways. Think about Israel's history for a moment. Do you, do you remember when Israel was wandering in the wilderness? And do you remember how they begin to grumble about the food? All right, you remember this? They, they, they looked to one another and they cried out, Oh, I'm so tired of this miraculous bread. Do you remember Egypt? Do you remember the pots of meat? Right? Do you remember, this sounds like a guy's camping trip. Do you remember the pots of, of meat? And then my favorite part about that text, right? Do you remember the onions? Do you remember the leeks and how good they were? And before long, God's people in the wilderness, though bread was falling from the sky, they had convinced themselves that it would be better to live in slavery under a tyrant who oppressed them and literally murdered their children all for some onions. (laughs) Do you see it? Do you remember that? Do you remember this text, right? Not only had they forgotten the awesome deliverance of the Lord, 
they had forgotten about their slavery. It was selective memory. They had completely forgotten. And all it took was a stale menu and some onions. How easily are we prone to a distorted view of sin all because we fail to remember that sin in all of its forms is really just slavery? We forget that sin in all of its forms is just slavery. This is what Paul railed against. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 4? Listen as I read this text. Formerly, he's speaking to believers, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved, right? You were enslaved like those in Egypt. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you then turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Do you hear it? Paul is saying, why, church, would you turn back to slavery? Sin is slavery. Paul is saying, Christian, do you realize that a return to sin is a return to slavery? That doesn't make sense. We, we, who would, we who are free, who have experienced the bondage of sin and have now found freedom, who were once enslaved, why would we turn back to worrying the way the world does, as if they have no heavenly father? Why would we turn back to living and coveting the possessions of the world? Why would we turn back to worrying about the future just because we have some dark days? That's what people without a father do. That's what people who are enslaved do. Why would we do these things? When our eyes have been opened to the bondage of sin and when we have experienced the freedom of Christ, church, why would you do this, Paul says? My brothers and sisters, tonight, can I commend to you the spiritual discipline of remembering. Of remembering. Remembering the bondage of sin. Remember the sting of the whip. Remember the stench of death. Remember its emptiness and its folly. Remember its guilt. Remember how unsatisfying it is. Remember so that you won't ever want to go back. But the call is not just to remember the bondage. The call is not just to remember the slavery. It's also to remember our deliverer, the Savior. It's a call to remember the Savior. A call as we heard tonight as Mark read. I mean, did you hear the distress and the depression of the psalmist? What did he do? He remembered the deeds of the Lord. He questioned, God, do you even have mercy anymore or is it done? And then he brought himself back to task by remembering the deeds of the Lord. Tell of his mighty acts from day to day so that we will not forget the Lord is our deliverer. The God who goes for us, the God who goes before us and the God who satisfies us in the desert with bread from heaven, he is our deliverer. It doesn't take much to, for us to forget. Just some onions. Just a bad day. We are a people who are prone to forget and we will run back into slavery all for the scent of a few onions. 
We mustn't forget the sting of sin and we mustn't forget the strength of our Savior or we will wander back into our old slavery and find ourselves in bondage once again. Let's learn from Israel's folly. So speak aloud, remind yourself, remind one another, remind me on my bad days that sin is slavery. Don't go back. Don't go back. So remember the Lord is your deliverer, but we must, remove, we must move on to a second point. A second lesson that we see in this text is that God can fulfill his purpose in spite of sin. We mentioned this last week. And we get to pick up on it again tonight. God can and will fulfill his purpose in spite of sin. Even as Samuel unsuccessfully issues this one last plea to Israel to turn and repent, all hope is not lost in this text. Not by a long shot, especially if you know the bigger story. Because even though God may turn his people over to the consequences of their sin, that doesn't mean that his mercy has run out. The answer to the psalmist is, no, it hasn't ended, right? It hasn't ended. His mercy has not run out. It's actually quite the contrary. Verses 19 through 24 describe the manner in which Saul is coronated as king. God knew who would be king, and Samuel knew who would be king, and even Saul knew who would be king, but no one else knew. So what did they do? They did like a human thing, right? They casted lots, not ballots. They casted lots. Part of me wonders if we should just cast lots, if that would, never mind, right? They, they casted lots. And the whole point of this portion of the narrative is to remind us, the readers, right? This is written for us, that even though Israel is taking matters into their own hands, right? It's describing the election system, Right? Even though Israel's taking matters into their own hands, God's still got this, right? God is still going before them, powerfully paving the way for their future. The sovereignty of God is magnified in two magnificent ways in this text. First, just through the use of casting lots. We see it in other places in the scripture. I don't recommend it, but we see it at other, at other times. The people may have thought that they were leaving things up to chance, perhaps, but as Proverbs 16.33 reminds us, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord, right? He controls even the roll of the dice. Israel may have rejected God as their ruler, but he's still ruling. He is still on the throne. Nothing stands in his way, not even the sin of his people. We also see God's sovereignty magnified as he rules in the midst of the people's sin. As he rules in the midst of their sin, even though Israel refused the route the Lord had chosen for their prosperity, even though they refused, the Lord was already at work preparing the way along this detour. Isn't that kind of the Lord? Preparing the way on the detour, right? Church, do you realize that there is no conceivable set of circumstances? There is no possible chain of events. There is no election outcome that can derail the purposes of God. Nothing. Dream with me. There is nothing. God is not 
frustrated by our election results. He is not limited by your declining health. God is not even handicapped by your sin. God rules and God reigns over the course of human events with one eye closed and a hand tied behind his back. It's easy. Do you remember back in Daniel chapter 4? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay to his hand. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stand before this God. And just to make sure that this point is clear to us, and just to make sure that Israel realizes that they aren't going to produce anything good, that it's only God, what does he do? And we see all throughout the Bible that God uses unlikely players on his team. You could say that he wins the Tour de France on a broke-down tricycle. He hits home runs with a plastic bat. He stacks the deck against himself just to prove it's so stinking easy. Church, don't grow tired of considering our God reigns with ease. <laughs> with, with ease. We're reminded of Saul in this text, his weak resume, and again in a humorous way. Last week we saw how Saul the farmer, what did he do? Or the, he lost his donkeys, and he wasn't even good enough to find them, right? Not that competent. And once Saul is announced as the new king in Israel, whoops, he's nowhere to be found. He's lost like his donkeys. The son of Kish is lost like the donkey of Kish until he is found where? Hiding. Hiding in the baggage. Just consider the irony here. This is a hilarious to me, right? Out comes Saul, the tall, handsome one, the king like the nations, the one that is called to courageously lead Israel into battle. He's hiding in the luggage. This is not going to go well, is it? <laughs> right? He's hiding in the bushes. He's trembling in the coat closet. Even though Saul has the appearance of a king, he has the heart of a little boy. He has the courage of a boy, which ironically, in a few chapters, what will we see? Saul, the tall one, sending a boy in his place to face a giant. What's the point of all this? God can accomplish his purposes no matter what he has to work with. He is the God who speaks and things come into existence. He rules. He reigns and he works in spite of our sin. Whether that be with a stammering boy from the sticks or a cowardly king hiding in the luggage. Church, what a great comfort it is for us to know that in spite of human weaknesses, in spite of the weakness of a preacher or the weakness of a pastor or the weakness of a parent, God's hand cannot be stayed. It doesn't matter how chaotic the sin is. He rules in the midst of the storm of sin. He rules. But how does he do this? Well, there are many ways, but I think this text highlights one specifically. 
and I would call it even the main way that he rules. So a third point that we see in this text is that God rules in the midst of chaos by his word. By his word. In verse 25, we read that after Saul was anointed king, Samuel proceeded to write down the, the rights and the duties of the king, right? He's pinning the constitution for, for Israel. We can assume that this was material that was either very similar or perhaps, and as I think, the very same material that we addressed last week from Deuteronomy chapter 17, where God laid down the rules for, for the monarchy. But whatever they were, there's no doubt that these directions that were written in this book were given to Samuel by the Lord. And just like we saw last week in chapter 10, verse 8, even though Israel is now going to be ruled by a king instead of God, God is, God is still ruling, right? Let's not be silly. This is not a coup. Saul isn't wrestling power away from God. God has no checks and balances. He doesn't submit himself to someone else's rule. In fact, we see God is the one who is giving the power. He is the one who is establishing Paul. When Paul get, or when Saul, when Saul gets his FBI guys, right, his secret service at the end of the chapter, God put it in their hearts to be like that, right? Like God gave them the skill with their crossbow or whatever they, whatever they had, you know, back then. Um, but either way, we see that even though Israel now has a king like the nations, they don't really have a king like the nations, do they? They are still God's people, and God's people are called to be distinct in the world. God still rules Israel, and how does he do it? Through his word. He does it through his word. And the pattern that we will see throughout Israel's history is that God gives his word first to the prophets, and then they give it to the kings and to the people. And when the king obeys, things go well for the people. And when the kings disobey God's word, things go bad for the people. And church, we don't have the king now, but the same is true for us today. It doesn't matter who is on the throne or who is in the oval office. God still rules this world. And in the midst of spiraling chaos, God rules with ease. And as his people, we as his people who delight in his rule, who say that we delight in his rule, we must recognize that God's primary instrument for ruling this earth is his word. That's his primary instrument. So the Supreme Court, they can rule however they want and they can rule on whatever they want. But it's a puppet court, right? They don't define morality, and they certainly don't define marriage. God already did that, and it's already established, and it's going to last. The word of our Lord stands forever. We must recognize and hear again that we submit to God how? Not just by standing up for marriage. We submit to God by obeying his word. We, his people, know his word. We hear his voice. He is our shepherd. We submit to God. We acknowledge his rule by submitting to his word. There's no doubt that for God's people, there are many times where he leads us into the wilderness. God intentionally led Israel to the edge of the Red Sea. 
God intentionally led Israel into the wilderness, right? God does this. He puts us in desperate situations and then seems to disappear, leaving nothing but his word, asking, will we obey? Will we trust him? Will we obey him in the secret when no one is watching? Will we obey when the cost of obedience seems too high? Church, we must. We must. As God's people, we will often find that the path before us is shrouded with darkness, that we cannot see what is ahead. Will we allow his word to be a lamp to our feet? Will we shine the light from the scriptures onto our paths? Will we be a people of obedience no matter what the cost? Church, I'm not calling you simply to hold a biblical view of marriage. I'm calling you to radical obedience. Radical, biblical obedience no matter what the cost. The Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. The implications there are endless. The call to love others like I love me? Are you kidding me, God? God is calling us to submit to his rule no matter the cost. In the midst of chaos, cling to his word. Not just political chaos, not just circumstantial chaos. In whatever chaos you are facing, cling to his word. When all around you seems dark, when your future seems unclear and uncertain, and the cost of obedience seems like it's just too much to bear, when your marriage feels too hopeless, when your children are too rebellious, when your money is running out, put your head down and obey. Put your head down and obey. This confidence in God's rule is the same reasoning that Paul uses when he calls for us to submit to rulers in Romans chapter 13, even wicked ones. Listen as I read this and see if you can make some of these connections. In Romans 13, he says, let every person be subject to to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, do you follow Paul's argument? Why should we obey the authorities? Because we know that God rules, right? God is the ruler behind the rulers. God is ruling. So no matter what liberty I may lose, no matter what injustice is committed against me, I can obediently submit to the Lord, even in the face of death, because I know that God rules. He's working it out. I don't even have to be alive to experience that blessing. You see, church, we must remember that our Lord was willingly executed at the hands of a wicked government. He submitted. He gave himself. Why? Because he trusted his Father. He obeyed. He was our example in obedience. And look at the good that God brought out of that circumstance. Look at the good that God brought out of the obedience of Christ as he headed to the cross. You see, when we really get this truth into our hearts, not only will we obey him with confidence, 
but we'll find that there's absolutely no reason for anxiety of any kind. None, right? Because if he rules, then what's the problem? We just have to trust that in the dark we can't see. Our obedience in those moments is what demonstrates our confidence in him. So when your life feels out of control, when you feel like you can't tell which way is up or down, anchor yourself. Anchor yourself in the scriptures and obey whatever you find there. Obey whatever you find there. So often I come to the scriptures and I see his standard and I'm like, how do I do that? So cry out, God, you've got to help me love like this. You've got to help me forgive like this. You've got to help me give like this. You've got to help me control my tongue like this. Help me. And then obey and trust the Lord. There's one final point before us tonight. We've been reminded of We've been reminded that weakness and cowardice and even blatant rejection of God can't derail his ultimate purposes for his people, that he'll get us there. But we need to remember one more thing. Sin is always the long way there. Sin is always the long way there. God will get us there, but sin is always a detour. It's the long way around. In verses 25 to 27, Samuel sends all the people home. But the author leaves us a hint that all is not really well. Saul is really king. God made him king. And so he's equipped with some secret service guys, right? The, but there's also some worthless fellows who despised him. From the very beginning of the kingship in Israel, from day one, there's division. There's already enemies. And it's the first ominous note for a new king. And if you think ahead to the many decades and the many centuries of war and murder and division that follow the book of Samuel and that follow Israel's history, we are reminded that God will be faithful to his people in spite of their sin, but sin will always make things worse. Sin is always going to make things worse. It was because of sin that Israel took a 40-year detour in the wilderness. And it was because of sin that Israel will take a several hundred, maybe millennial year uh, detour before God sends Christ the Deliverer. So friends, let's remember that even though God is sovereign over even the sin in our lives, sin in all its forms is always a detour. It's always slavery. Slavery is not a part of God's plan for our lives. It's always slavery. It's always the long way home. Sin will always cause heartache and pain in our lives, even in the mercy of God. For the believer, no matter what the sin and no matter what pain results from it, God's grace will always have the last word, won't it, church? Israel forgot that God was their king and their deliverer. And when they forgot that, that they had been delivered from bondage, they just ended up in some new form of slavery. So church, we must guard against this by remembering the mighty acts of the Lord. And when we do, 
It won't be long before we come face to face with the mightiest act of the Lord and in the face of all of human history. Not only is our God able to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh, and not only is God able to bring down the walls of Jericho, but we see our God bring down the kingdom of Satan. Our our Lord Jesus Christ went to a cross and when we remember we remember not just the slavery but we remember the deliverer church remember the cross remember the gospel which is the reality for believers that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for through Christ Jesus and the law the spirit of death Christ has set us free from sin That is the reality we live in, no matter what darkness is ahead. Will you pray with me? As always, when we come to God's word, we are called to respond. Perhaps tonight you would consider how you need to remember the mighty acts of the Lord. Maybe you need to know your Bible better and remember the details of the mighty deeds of the Lord. Or maybe you need to meditate on one mighty act. Would you ask that God would give you a desire to remember? Perhaps there is some sin in your life. Some sin that you have been tricked into thinking is freedom when in fact it's just a ball and chain. Ask the Lord to expose it to you and repent and put it off. And as we close, as the Lord has perhaps graciously revealed some sin in your life. Remember the gospel that Christ bore in his body on that tree the sins that you and I deserve. Put aside guilt and rejoice in mercy. Father, we thank you for the mercies of Christ. We thank you that you have not given up on us in our sins. So, Father, would you make us a people who do not forget and do not give up on others in their sin. Make us a people who are merciful like you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, church.